In three, two, one. Hi there. This is Daryl Scott. You are listening to Life Hacks with Daryl and Grace. It's just so hard for me to spit that out that way just because I'm a chauvinist and I always think the woman should go first. Grace, how are you today? <laughs> I'm great, Daryl. How are you? I am, I am good. It is a uh, long week. It is warm today. Um, we have a very interesting topic to talk about. We are going to talk about or talk to... Uh, a gentleman who's a research scientist in the Texas Juvenile Crime Prevention Center at the College of Juvenile Justice and Psychology at Prairie View University. His name is Terrence Allen. Now, Terrence, that's a long title. Tell me exactly what it is that you do. Well, I have a a short mandate with a long title. <laughs> okay. I'm a researcher, basically, and my specific area of, of interest and expertise is juvenile justice and police. Uh, those are two separate areas. Uh, in regard to juvenile justice, um, I research, well, my research is around the intersection between really juvenile delinquency, education, mental health, um, and uh, child welfare. So it's really how those four areas intersect um, to try to understand children, uh, the plight of, of children, particularly children of color in urban communities. Uh, you know, when people think about juvenile justice itself, most people think about juvenile justice and they think about juvenile crime, and they don't really understand that juvenile justice is more than just children who get in trouble, um, and particularly children who commit really heinous crimes. So those children who commit the heinous crimes, uh, the ones that come to mind when we think about juvenile justice, I mean, just the public, generally speaking, they think about the high-profile, really, really terrible crimes that young people commit. Those people generally, those young people generally are not in the juvenile justice system. In most jurisdictions, those young people are waived over to the adult system. So they are not even part of the juvenile justice system. So my, my work really revolves around um, understanding the plight of, of children uh, who are at risk and all of those child saving or child-caring systems that sort of serve uh, children at risk. Uh, so I, I said it was short, but I guess it's a little long. Well, yeah. Well, how did you get to this point, to this position? You know, tell us about a little more about your background, Terrence. Okay. Well, I, I have a PhD in social work. And... When I first started, I started off working in Cleveland, the Cuyahoga County Juvenile Court. Um, and I worked as I was a probation counselor. I started off as a detention officer, then I went to, uh, I was a probation counselor. And, you know, initially, my thought was that I would go to law school, uh, be a lawyer, and sort of not really thinking about working with children per se. I always knew that I would work in the community, but to make a long story short, I uh, after I got my bachelor's degree and I came back home to Cleveland to work, uh, and I started working at the court, uh, and I was working with this program called the Youth Advocate Program. I'm going to give you a long story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just cut me off I'm getting too long. But I was working at this program, Youth Advocate Program, and a young man who was uh, a student at Case, he was doing his field placement there, and he sort of observed me working with the kid, and I love working with children. So I always felt like that was something that, um, almost like a calling. So he recognized that I enjoyed what I was doing, I was good at it, so he suggested that I apply 
to the Mandel School of Social Science, which is at Case. Uh, and, you know, you guys are, are from Cleveland. So, you know, African-Americans in Cleveland, uh, they don't really consider Case as an option, a viable option for education. Correct. At least I did. Nobody I know really looked at Case as being a place where they would one day matriculate. So when he suggested it, I said, ah, Case is a very good school. What the heck? I, he suggested it. I don't expect to get admitted into Case, but if he think I should try, then what the heck? So he gave me this woman's name and admissions to go over and talk to. And I went over there, I talked to him. Long story short, I started working at, I mean, I started uh, my master's degree at Case. And while I was there, uh, I was studying the family. So they have a track, one track is children, youth, and family. So I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to study children and families and try to get an understanding. I'm working in the juvenile court system. So I thought maybe i get my master's in social work and then after I finish my master's, i get my JD. Anyway, while I was working there, I mean, while I was going to school there, and I had to read all of this stuff, right? Stuff related to family. Much of what I did not agree with, uh, what I was reading and all these different studies and things, I really didn't agree with them, but I couldn't dispute what I was reading because I didn't understand the research. So when I would get to the research part of these articles that I had to read, I, I couldn't really understand the research part. So I had no real basis for disagreeing with what I read, even though I didn't believe it. So after three years of that, I kind of got ticked off and said, you know, this is what I really want to do. This is what I'm interested in. But in order for me to combat what I'm reading, I have to understand research. So I made a decision my last, semester of my master's program instead of going to law school to pursue a PhD. Um, so at that point, I had done a lot of work, you know, practice with, with children and kids in the juvenile justice system, uh, particularly at juvenile court as a probation counselor. So I thought pursuing a PhD, since I was doing this work, I was practicing I said, now I'm going to study it. I'm just going to study the juvenile justice system. I'm going to study from the beginning to the end. From intake, when a child comes in contact with the juvenile justice system, all the way through the end, they, uh, the disposition. And so the first step in that process is when a child comes in contact with a police officer. Right? So police officer, then they so police officers and intake, and there's an arraignment, and there's a, uh, a trial, and then the disposition. Uh, well, adjudication, and then the disposition. So in that process, I said, well, after I finish this, I'll write a book. I'll write a book talking about, you know, how children come in contact with the juvenile justice system, and then there's a disposition at the end. But I got stuck at the beginning in that area of child coming in contact with a police. I found that to be the most interesting and the most understudied. So I never got to the intake and the intake and adjudication and then disposition. I never even got to that point. So I've spent really the last 18 years studying the intersection, well, studying the, the, the interaction between policing and juveniles. So what I realized after a while that in, in juveniles meaning between the age of 12 and 17. So that's the age of juveniles. But what I, what I realized in the last maybe five years that I've had to extend it beyond juveniles. So now between the ages of 12 and say 25, 
to young adulthood. Because as you probably know, just from what you've heard and observed, when police come in contact with juveniles, it's generally the older, the upper echelon of juveniles. So not necessarily 12. Although some, you have cases like Tamir Rice. Uh, but for the most part, it's usually 17, 18, all the way up to around 25. Those are the cases that we hear most about. Uh, we have those exceptions where we hear about the two mirror rises and, and some other uh, high-profile cases. So I had to go beyond just juveniles and kind of extend it into, into uh, young adulthood. Uh, but that was how I got into the policing part. But the juvenile justice, looking at the juvenile justice system uh, and, and and how children sort of get overlooked or neglected or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that has been an area of interest of mine from the very beginning of my career, particularly growing up in communities where children have been exposed to the juvenile justice system. Now, when I, when I define the juvenile justice system, um, I consider all of the child-serving systems as part of the juvenile justice system. It's not just delinquency. You know, children get in trouble, sure enough. But as I explained in, in the beginning of this conversation, those children that get in trouble for committing really, really bad crimes, they're not necessarily part of the juvenile justice system. They are in part of the adult system. The juvenile justice system are a collection of agency services and programs that are designed to rehabilitate young people who come to the attention of the court for matters of delinquency when they get in trouble uh, for acts against the community or matters of dependency or neglect. And those are the kids who come uh, in contact with, uh, in, in Cleveland, it would be Jane Etna, right? Uh, because they're either there because their parents or their guardian or caregiver has not provided adequate care for them. So they're being neglected. Or they come to the attention of the court because of some form of abuse, whether it be sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental abuse, whatever the case may be. Um, so that's, and all of those programs and services that are connected so either those children who are delinquent or abused and neglected um, are make up the juvenile justice system. The court is part of that system. It is the big kahuna of the juvenile justice system. However, it is not the only part of the system. And I, and I raise that point because, you know, the, the public have this conception, and I would say misconception, of juvenile justice as being just for children who get in trouble. Now, when you, when you break down juvenile justice, now I'm making a distinction between juvenile justice and juvenile justice system. Juvenile justice is, is really when you just think about juvenile. Juvenile is an age classification, right? It is to distinguish those children or individuals according to their age. So when we think about, when we say juvenile, we really think about a child as opposed to an adult. So the term juvenile is an age construct, right? Justice is fair treatment. So juvenile justice is simply the fair treatment of children when you really break it down to it. The juvenile justice system is those programs and services that serve children. Okay. Who come to the attention of the court. All right, Terrence, hang on. We're going to go to a break. So our conversation with Dr. Terrence Allen continues after this. Life Hacks, Conversations with Daryl and Grace will be right back. We are presented by Code M Radio. You are listening to Life Hacks, Conversations with Daryl and Grace. We're brought to you by Code M Radio. Our guest today is Dr. Terrence Allen. Uh, Dr. Allen, in this day and age when children are not the greatest verbal communicators, 
how do you and parents adjust? Because kids right now, they, they, not, they may not verbalize their answer, but they can text you a message in a heartbeat. And it seems <laughs> as though they communicate better through technology as opposed to verbal styles. How do you well, do you know, I think, No, I'm sorry. Go oh, no, I was going to say, how do you deal with that? Well, I, I think, you know, the home is what I think, I, I call it, the home has to be con- conducive to learning. And so, you know, for example, I, I can use my child as an example. Uh, she's 27 now, but when she was young, when she was I think all the way up until probably the age of 10, and I'm not sure exactly how old she was, but we didn't let her watch TV. Um, she couldn't watch TV because we didn't want to pollute her mind with all the stuff that was on TV. Um, so she didn't watch. She didn't watch TV until she started going on play dates. And when she went to other people, you couldn't control what happened there. But she didn't watch it at home. And I make that point because that was a way to control what she was able to take in, how she was able to sort of see the world. And in today's world, you know, you can't avoid technology because at the end of the day, technology is good. But a parent has to be able to control how technology is used in their universe. And when to explain to children what the pros and cons, and I get it most, a lot of the parents that I have worked with throughout my career, they don't understand that. You know, they they don't see technology as being a bad thing. They don't even believe that they should have a conversation around the use of technology. But we as a society have to sort of, one, children, we have to control their environment. That's one. Even if they grow up in bad environments, we still have to control how they use technology and for what reason. That's one. Two, we have to recreate a village. And what I mean by that is we can't use the excuse. And I know people talk about it's on the parents, it's on the parents, it's on the parents. But, you know, we have parents, just like we have technology, we also have children raising children. Uh, We have children who are 14, 15, 16, 17 years old having children, and they really don't know how to control their child's environment because they're they're still a child themselves. So we have to come up with programs, services, um, and uh, we have to have people in the community that set an example for other people, for young people. Um, and, you know, the technology is, is something that we all struggle. I mean, it's not just children, by the way. You have adults who use technology in a way that is irresponsible. Uh, at least children are children. But the adults, they, they use technology in, in ways that is unconscionable as well. So we have to, as a society, get a grip on technology and how to use it uh, and how do we funnel some parameters into the community, especially with with, with, with children. Um, I mean, the schools are grappling with the use of technology and texting and, you know, how to uh, teach children to read, uh, to read more without the use of looking at a computer, to read books, for example. So it's, it's still something that we have to to deal with, but the one thing that I believe that parents have to do to control technology is to control the environment. Um, they have to control the environment. You can't just allow six and seven and eight, nine, ten-year-olds to just text, 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 text. Sometimes you got to talk. You know, uh, and parents are more demanding of having a conversation with their kids rather than texting back and forth. I mean, that's one way to, to, to limit the texting to certain ways of communicating as opposed to the primary way of communicating. Uh, 
So I, that's I, that would be my my way of dealing with that. I mean, I have uh, when I when I talk to to parents now about the issue of texting and computer use. I mean, that's another one. Uh, there's there should be a certain number of hours, for example. You know, child shouldn't be on the computer all day. They they should have a certain number of hours during a certain time of day where they use the computer. In other ways, other times they should be forced to interact with people face to face. They should be forced to read and they should be forced to speak as opposed to just texting. Because if you're not speaking, texting is a it's not an intimate way of communicating. Right. And, you know, we, we want our young people to be able to communicate and have some level of intimacy in that discussion. And that you can't get that by text. No, you can't. You have, yeah, it's very no, different. I'm, than when we were growing up, you know, so here we are now in the age, uh, like you said, of the texting. And that's uh, the one of the main ways that the uh, millennials uh, uh, communicate with one another or communicate with us or communicate, period. So you as the research scientist and you talked about uh, Dr. Allen, you talked about the agencies, the services and programs offered for uh you know, with the juvenile justice. So then from there, now you do the research piece. That's, you know, that's yours. And then, so who do you talk to? I mean, how do you implement or who implements these agencies? I mean, or implements the agency services and programs. And they work tan, I would imagine they work tan in tandem with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I've done, you know, is, is, in, in my work, you have to create or develop a relationship because, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher. So as a researcher, I need data. I need information. And what I have to do is go to these agencies. Now, what I have to study the, the nature of how those agencies deliver services. And they deliver services to children. So in my work as a researcher, because I, I have sort of included research and practice together. So I don't just, you know, go out and collect data on the research side. You know, for many, many years, I mentioned that I was a probation counselor. I was a, I was a practitioner. So I delivered services and I interacted with families and kids uh, just to deliver the services and not really had any concern about the research side. However, when I became interested in research. Um, I understood from my practice days what I had to do to collect the data that I needed to answer specific questions. So we all have things that we want to know. Uh, And those are how we sort of create our research universe. This is how we decide what we want to do. And uh, I know that, you know, Children go to school, and most of the children who come in contact with the juvenile justice system, the juvenile, yeah, juvenile justice system, are one to two grades behind academically. I also know that most of them have a diagnosable um, disorder. There are some mental health issues going on for most of them. Uh, so, if, if, if most of these kids have problems in school, they're not, that their academic performance is not up to par. Most of them have a diagnosable mental health disorder. And when I say mental health, like depression, um, you know, they may be smoking marijuana, you know, so they may have some, some substance abuse issues. Uh, you know, so these issues have to be taken into consideration when they come to court. Uh, So for me, I want to know how and to what extent are these issues 
uh, affecting this child's behavior. So it's not just that they are they're, they're born with this demon gene. So all of my work is around trying to one come up with effective programs and services to address those issues, and two just to better understand what's going on in certain communities with certain whether it be gender focused, whether it be age focused, <clears throat> um, whether it be race focused. Uh, I'm doing a project right now where I'm looking at um, juveniles and, and, and families uh, and all of the issues that people say impact their behavior or their, their overall quality of life. But I'm looking at it from, from different perspectives. I'm looking at it from, from age. So I'm looking to see if there's a difference between, say, younger adolescents, I mean, younger children and older adolescents. So say from 7 to 12 and then well, 7 to 11 and then say 12 to 17, if there a difference. If there's a difference between boys and girls, if there's a difference between Hispanics, African-Americans, and, and whites. So how do we better understand the dynamics of what's going on in communities by, by culture? Because, you know, if you study his, Hispanics, their culture is much different than African Americans. Their families function much different. So is that does that make a difference? Or is there a cultural component that we need uh, to better understand? Uh, is there a geography, say urban versus rural? Children who grow up in rural environments have a much different experience than children who grow up in urban environments. So we need to have a better understanding of all of this. And these are things that we really don't know. I mean, we talk about it. And we, we have a lot of uh, uh, hypotheses around the, these differences. But because we guard children so much, there aren't a lot of researchers who have an interest in, in children. Because we, we, you have to go through a lot. You have a lot of consent forms and a lot of fair tape that you have to to consider it. So people don't don't study children um, in a way that you can dig down deep and answer a lot of questions that everybody has, but people rarely know the answers. All right, let me ask so with, let, let me ask you this. Prior to March thirteenth of twenty twenty, and then kids went home and they basically I'll say they were restricted in, in learning in school. Do you find that your data has changed um, because pre-COVID and post-COVID? Is that making a difference in your hypothesis? Well, I haven't. This, the, the effects of COVID is really, people are just now starting to study it. Uh, it's not been a focus of, of my work uh, because the public health part of it uh, I sort of lean on other people to give me some insight on um, on COVID, on the effects of COVID. So we're still trying to figure out the, the impact of COVID. But, you know, I think what COVID, what we do know, and what, what I've noticed, um, what, what COVID did is, is a lot of children were at home. So before COVID, uh, like, for example, if I had to do an interview before COVID, I would interview the person face-to-face. I would go to where they are, and I would interview them. Well, during COVID, you couldn't do that. So, you know, it put a lot of stuff on hold. People found ways to collect data and to do snapshots of what's going on. But I don't really believe that we have a real grip on the, the total impact of COVID. Other than we know that um, academic performance in certain communities went down. Not all communities, but in poor communities, for example. We know that children who were confined to be at home did not get the quality of education that we would want. But we don't know the, the total effect of that. Our children who were involved in um, ju- secure juvenile facilities, 
Um, many of them were allowed to go home because, you know, in those close proximity in a, in a facility, they were exposed to, to COVID, so they were allowed to go home and do their do their uh, their confinement at home. So we don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people have done quick snapshots, and, and most of it is looking at looking at data around uh, academic achievement, uh, looking at uh, the the number of delinquent uh, cases. So all of that went down. So we know that. But as far as the behavior and attitude and some of the things that I'm interested in, I don't think we'll know that until after COVID. So we're beginning to get back out and, 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 and do our work. It'll never go back to the way it was. But we have some more, we have more latitude. Uh, we have the ability now to, to talk to people and, you know, meet with them. And, uh, before, you know, you, it's kind of hard to know the effects of, a, of an interview doing Zoom. But we don't know that if I see you in person and talk to you, will I get the same answers in the same way that if I do a Zoom? We don't really know that. And I'm I'm kind of an old school person. I, I I didn't I didn't even bother to do interviews via Zoom. I just decided that I would wait and do my work after. But I'm sure that I'll end up doing some work via Zoom. But I because I was concerned about if I interview a family and I'm looking at them and I'm watching their body. Uh, you know, body language when I'm asking certain questions, um, watching how they respond. All of this is part of the process. And I don't know that I'll, I can do that via Zoom. You know, if I ask you a question and you're sitting next to your parents, and when, you, when I ask the question, you might squirm a little bit, or you might look at your parents, or you might look away. Those are signals that are important. And I don't know how that can be construed doing an interview via Zoom. So I haven't figured that out yet. I don't want to take a chance on that because that's important information that I need to consider when I'm, when I'm figuring out what's going on. So, I mean, so COVID for public health research, I think that was a goal matter for them. But for me, and the way I like to do my work, I, I, I really had to pause a little because I had to sort of figure it out. Um, and because everybody was at home, they couldn't come out, and you couldn't come in, it sort of put a, put a pause on it. But there are clear evidence that COVID had an effect on, on the raw data, the number. You know, things like, again, academic achievement. There's clear difference between how middle-class, uh, wealthy children performed as opposed to children who were, you know, low-income and, and poor. Clear difference. And, and in one instance, it set those children back at least a year and in some cases, perhaps even more, because we are still trying to figure this out even now. Yeah, and that's um, probably going to be, it's going to take years, you know, and, and yeah. just thinking about, I mean, because it's affected uh, everyone, all of us across the board, but doing what you do, uh, Dr. Allen, as a scientist and your research, there's so many layers to that, you know, and so... What would be? What would you say is the most difficult or the hardest part of your job doing the research do, uh, as a research scientist? Okay. Well, um, the most difficult part of my work because I work, I don't collect just numbers. I don't, you know, I, my work is I'm in the community. So that's an important part of what I do. I go out and I interact with people. 
And like I mentioned before, it's important for me to have relationships with different systems. So the most difficult part is establishing those relationships because that gives me access to information. So when I think about, for example, um, establishing relationship with the police department, which is clearly the most resistant system in our society. Uh, so to get, and that is to have access to policing records, to talk to police officers, uh, to do all of the work to understand um, answering questions uh, related to, you know, police, how police interact with people. And because I have an interest in policing from the perspective of, of how they interact with black men, which is, you know, right now, but not just now, actually always have been the really most sensitive area of police in America. Um, so to develop relationships with using the police department as, as one. Um, even juvenile court, you know, they're not just going to let anybody come in and talk to those kids or give them access to all of that data and information. Children and family services. Uh, again, in Cleveland, that would be Jane Edna. So my work is around trying to look at how systems, large public systems, um, impact the quality of life for children. School systems, you know, going going to um, Cleveland Municipal School District, for example, and asking them uh, to give me information about, about students. Um, to go to those principals. All of, all of everything related to collecting data from children is guarded, unlike adults. Children is, is very guarded. So my work from the very beginning, I would say the last 18 years, it has always been a challenge. I mean, the policing, I've recently figured out a way to get data from the police. I've tried to get policing data my entire career. And after 17 years or 16 years, in year 17, I finally figured it out. But it took three years to develop those relationships. So clearly for me, and that may not be the case for everybody because, you know, researchers collect, do their work differently. And some people just, just look at that sheer number. You know, they look at, they only study data that's available. For me, I have very specific questions that I want to ask. And I don't, I don't, I don't look at data that's available and write and, and, and do my work around available information. I structure my research around things that people want to know, that interest the public, um, and that's important. So it's not just the easy route of trying to look at data that's available. I want to look at data that you answer questions that you want to know, you know, um, and the public in general, but specifically people in those communities that I'm interested in studying. So I'm an urban researcher. So my work is always around urban communities, like the communities where I grew up. But that's how I sort of focus my work. Uh, I look at those communities where I grew up because I have a lot of questions related to, you know, growing up in on Superior. You mentioned Shell. I grew up I, I live right around the corner. I live on Montcalm. Uh, Rochelle is not far, you know, Woodland, Shell. So you know how those communities are structured. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of stuff going on. And in the 70s and 80s, it was, well, 70s, not necessarily 80s, it was really a lot of stuff going on. But my work today really is reflected in those experiences. So now things have changed to some degree, and so I make those adjustments. But it's really related to a lot of things I experienced as a as a young person growing up on Superior and on Woodland. And and for our listeners who don't know, um, Dr. Allen, born and raised in Cleveland, uh, spent some time at John Hay, and also and then graduated from Glenville 
So we're going to hold you to this. Be, be, this answer needs to be short. I'm just telling you now. Um, so you did take things from your childhood. And when I say childhood, I'm going to say your teen years. And you are now applying it to your job? Oh, absolutely. Everything that I've done throughout my career, one degree or another, is related to my experience growing up in, in Cleveland. Okay. Yeah, that's what I, that was my going to be my next question. How did the, your upbringing, you know, impact uh, your career decision, and, and and it is applicable and it translates uh, to your career? Can we talk a little more in detail about that? We're going to go to break in about three minutes, and then we can continue. But uh, yeah, I'd love to hear more. Okay. Well, I mean, for example, um, you know, I grew up in a single parent home, so for me, there are things that I experienced, I, w- I was fortunate. I had a lot of people around me who took an interest in me. I was a pretty good athlete. So it kept me out of trouble and it kept me focused. Um, you know, my, my, my mother, I just came back from my mother's funeral actually yesterday. Um, but she was able to keep me focused. You know, she she would tell me stuff like, you know, if you want to get out of here, all you have to do is go to school. And I believe that, you know, but there were things that I questioned. You know, I mean, I lived on a street. You, you're familiar with um, Mount Carmel. I lived on a street where almost every other house that was selling drugs. You know, and I couldn't understand how were they able to get away with you know, and the police drive up and down the street all the time. So I had these questions going up as a kid, you know. Oh. Uh, I did a project in high school. I know we got to go. I, should I wait and come till we come back? Yeah, let's take a quick pause, and then we'll come right back with uh, Dr. Allen, uh, Terrence Allen, research scientist, uh, right here. Uh, joining us, Life Hacks Conversations with Daryl and Grace, presented by Code M Radio. Hold that thought. Dr. Allen, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Life Hacks, Conversations with Daryl and Grace, presented by Code M Radio. We're talking with Dr. Terrence Allen, a research scientist uh, in juvenile justice uh, and psychology. I want to continue to talk about, uh, before the break, we were talking about your upbringing, your childhood. Yeah, you're from Northeast Ohio, so you are a native Clevelander. So uh, let's talk a little more about that. You were saying how on the street that you grew up, there were, yeah. you know, like you said, every other house? Yeah. There were, there were quite a few drug, drugs, people that sold drugs. And they never got caught. The police, when the police would drive up and down the street all the time. And I, you know, I just really didn't understand that. Now, and, and back then, and perhaps even today, Cleveland had the highest uh, conviction rate in the nation. Homicide convictions, so people who committed really terrible crimes. But, you know, I, I just had all these questions. I, I did a project, and I was about to say before the break, when I was in high school, and I wanted to know how many in, in our U.S. legislature, the Congress, are 535 people. How many of them actually sent their children public schools. Now, back in those days, in the, in the late 70s, I remember being my senior year, I had an economics book, for example. Uh, like I said, I graduated in 1978. Well, I had an economics book that was written in 1965. So, you know, economics changed every year. So those books, even back then, in order to understand economics, you had to get a new book. You certainly could not have had a book that was 13 years old and and been uh, taught the latest uh, theories and uh, understanding of, of, of economics. So I was wondering, I said, well, how many people in Congress in their children to public schools? Now, I remember back then when I finished doing all this Research. I was in high school. I was 17 years old. 
there were two, two people out of 535. Wow. Two of them. Now, so how could they possibly have compassion and understanding for children growing up in the inner city? And, and, and we believe that education is the fastest route to social mobility. But the people who make those decisions that could, could impact thousands and thousands and thousands of poor children, many of them grew up in inner cities who are black. Do they really care? So those kinds of things concern me. I, I had my own conclusions back then, but I continue to try to get a better understanding of it throughout my career. So, you know, we can't, if we don't understand the dynamics of our community and know some of the history, it's difficult for us to really go out and do this work. So for me, that, that kind of guided me and kept me motivated, not because of what's going on now, but because what's going on now is really a continuation of what has been going on for the last 40, 50 years, at least. I would imagine it was going on even before then. But I don't know that most 16 or 17-year-olds had an interest in some of this stuff that I'm talking about. Yeah, we're trying to play right. basketball right. and football <laughs> and trying to hang out with our right, friends. Right, right. Yeah, but I was doing that too now. I played football, I played basketball. I, I, I was an athlete in high school. Uh, well, throughout, you know, had the opportunity even in college. But I had this interest simply because it was in front of me. I could see it every day. And, you know, my mother told me, she said, if you want to make it out of here, just go to school. Just, just do what you've been doing. Just go to school and, and you'll be okay. But those questions remain, you know? So when I thought about, you know, 535 Congress people and only two send their kids to public school, then I'm like, well, they can't have a real interest or concern about the experience of kids going to John Hay, Glenville, East Tech, East High. They don't really care because what I came to the conclusion is they really don't, look at us as being a viable investment because they didn't see us as being the, the people who were one day going to be productive citizens. So it wasn't necessary for them to invest in us. All right. As, That's we, what I, as we get ready to wrap up, there are two things I want you to do. Number one, I know you have written many things um, and I, and I, and I'm sure we have people out there who want to know different things about the situation. Uh, can you mention a few of the things that you have written so our listeners can 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 reach out and get those? And also, what lasting thing can you tell parents uh, that they can do in order to, and I'm not trying to get rid of your job, but in order yeah. to remedy this situation? Well, what, what parents can do is a couple of things. One, they can listen to their children. Just listen. Two, they can lead by example. You know, a lot of the things that, that children see, they try to emulate. And what, what parents do, and I've had this experience in my career, and I, this is going to be my final thought. What parents do when they have children at a young age, particularly boys, Girls too, but I, I'm going to make a point about young boys. What they do is they, they have these children and they still want to hang out and party. You know, when you have a child, you, it, immediately there's some personal sacrifice you have to make. And depending on where you are in life, that sacrifice can be perhaps greater than at other points in life. But when you have a child, you're a single parent, uh, you don't have any help, you don't have any education. Um, and you have to create an environment for your child to thrive. It doesn't matter where you live. You have to create an environment for your child to thrive, and you have to lead by example. So if you realize that you want to go to school, you don't have the education, well, you have to go to school. In Cleveland, for example, that's how uh, Cuyahoga County Community College started having 
um, daycare services. Because the, many of the young ladies who had babies didn't have any daycare services. So they created it and brought it to the college where it, it, it was either in the school or it was very close to the college so that they can drop them off and go to class. Well, once they got their education, they were able to provide the life for their child that they've always wanted. But some of them, in that process, many of the kids that came to my attention, they would grow up in these destructive environments. They would take their kids out, take them to a nice community, um, you know, and, and but the child was, was sort of um, kept going back to where they grew up. So if they was in a project and the mothers couldn't understand, well, I'm giving him all this stuff, I'm doing all this stuff for him but I can't get him under control. Well, the problem is the young man is 12 or 13 now. When he was seven or eight, before you became a, a responsible parent, you were doing a lot of things in his presence. He was probably bringing men around, um, just hanging out. He was putting him off on the grandmother or the aunt or, you know, while you went out and did your thing. And then after seven or eight years, of him observing all this inappropriate behavior, then you decide that you want to be the right parent. You want to do the right thing. And you well, want to change it up and, right. and do all of that, which is not right. So we're don't get me wrong. We're going to have to have you back on because you have a lot of information to talk about, okay? So we have been speaking to Dr. Terrence Allen, a research scientist in the Texas Juvenile Crime Prevention Center in the College of Juvenile Justice and Psychology at Prairie View University. My name is Daryl Scott. For Grace Roberts, we want to thank you for listening to Life Hacks with Daryl and Grace. We'll talk to you next week. Life Hacks conversations with Daryl and Grace. Grace, 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 Grace.